Now, many of you tuned in for my conversation with Joe Laurinaitis, better known as Road Warrior Animal. Remember that episode? Well, this was about the time Joe was debuting his own podcast, Road Warrior Animal. Oh, what a rush. You know, you can't even say that without, uh, you know, getting that guttural, deep voice sound, right? And I didn't do it very well, but, you know, it's close. Oh, what a rush. Anyway, uh, it's doing very well uh, out there. And Joe and I talked for over two hours. But, um, you know, he still had some great stories to tell when I started asking questions from his legion of fans. Here's Joe. Now, before I let you go, uh, I got some rapid fire questions here for you. And, you know, because like I said, I, I go off the tracks and I, this is basically exactly what it is. So I'm sure. going to throw some I'm going to throw some just off the wall questions to you. And uh, you can as uh, much as you want to talk about it, as short as you want to talk about it, whatever. OK, so yeah, no problem. Uh, here we go. What talent do you possess that people would be surprised uh, hearing. What talent do I possess? People be surprised. You know, I'm really good at, to be honest with you, on interior decorating things. <laughs> really? Are you an HGTV guy like me? I am, bro. <laughs> I always thought Fixer that was a great show yeah. cooking with animals. Oh man, I love it. Or the Food Channel well, stuff yeah. too. Are you are you could imagine? You could, could you imagine? Hey, today's episode on animal flipping. Yeah. I mean, on flipping houses. Even I <laughs> love that stuff. I would love to do a flipping TV show, flipping houses, or a cooking show. Awesome. I, you remember we did that cooking show and Vince show the one time we Hawk and I cooked that. We called it Glog, whatever Hawk called yeah, it. Yeah. That, big, <laughs> that big pot of everything. Hawk goes. That's we flying put everywhere. A bit of eye of eye of newt and frog legs. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, bro. It was disgusting. Yeah. Okay, but uh, you you uh, you have. But are you good with a hammer? I mean, you can or just knowing what goes where. Bro, how could you not be good with a hammer? All the hammers are electric now. You just go. You know, but no, listen, when I was a young kid, I used to frame houses before yeah. I got into wrestling. When I was, when I was going through bouncing and not even pre-wrestling camp, I was framing houses for guys when I was 18 years old, you know? So, I mean, I, I love doing that. I love seeing how things get built. I can look at a room and say, okay, well, this picture belongs here. This belongs here. This looks like that. I love that end of it too. And I also like experiment in the kitchen. I mean, I like cooking omelets all different ways when I cook breakfast for the family. I, every Sunday morning, I used to try to be home every Sunday or as many Sundays out of the month. I could be some, some months. It would only be one Sunday for three months, you know. But when I would come home, I would cook the family breakfast, you know. I had one of those big Viking ranges with the whole center console with a big flat iron. And I would do the pancake thing and the eggs, the bacon, the whole works. And, and then I would try to do some creative dish for at night. You know, which huh. I would say, oh, this I, le- I learned how to like this over in Japan, and I would just cut up a chicken breast and different different kind of spices in it, and the family would eat it and they would love it. You know, yeah. uh, or at least they would tell me they loved it. Now you know they probably spit <laughs> it out afterwards. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. That's awesome. All right, okay. How, what what's your routine when you wake up every day? You're a disciplined guy. Do you have the same? Bro, I wake I, I I wake up and I'm not kidding you. I go in my kitchen. I don't need a dozen egg whites like I used to before, but I'll eat four or five egg whites. I'll make myself an egg white omelet. The night before, maybe I'll cook up some mushrooms and 
I got some turkey sausage, something I slice up, and I'll throw that in my omelet with some feta cheese, and that's my breakfast. That, and I found these low-carb, low-fat banana pancakes. You throw in the oven, and they're low-sodium and everything else, and bam, I'll eat three of those. And, you know, my cup of blueberries and blackberries, and I, I keep it pretty clean, man, a cup of cocoa and then I'll do what I got to do like I'm doing with you now. I'll do these, I'll do my interviews and my promos for the upcoming weekend or for my podcast. And then I yeah. go and like, I got the gym. Do you go, do you go in? Cause you still look great. Yeah. You know, I, I, I still go work out, man. I, I, you know, it's funny. It's you think at my age, I'm trying, you know, I guess I lifted so heavy, so long that I gained so much muscle over the years. I mean, I do a lot more aerobics now than I ever did. Yeah. But I'm still 270 pounds, yeah. you, you know, and, and I, keep, I try to keep in shape. If I really needed to and I used to go in the ring and do it, I can do it. There'd be no problem. People wouldn't question the thing because right. I don't look like your typical 57-year-old guy, you know. But you can't, you can't keep not your lifting typical, that. Yeah, you can't keep lifting yeah, well, mountains there, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bench pressing 650 pounds anymore because yeah. I don't try to do that, you know. I do a more of a circuit training type workout. You know, you know, it's funny. When Hawk and I were younger, we would laugh at Paul Ellering because Paul Ellering would do the step ups and all this circuit training. Yeah, we go, right. what are you doing that for? Why are you doing that? And he goes, you'll <laughs> see someday. Right, right. And now, and now I'm doing the circuit training segment. You know, I'm not doing the Jack LaLanne type crap, but I'm, <laughs> you know, I definitely milded it down. But once you get that base. All you got to do is get the blood flowing to keep it there. It pretty much stays. I'm doing DDP yoga now. Oh, bro. My brother Mark, I don't know if you remember my brother Mark. My brother Mark yeah. was a member of the Wrecking Crew, uh-huh. Raging Fury. They were tag team champions in WCW. My brother Mark, God bless him, he was 275 pounds. He started doing DDP yoga. He's down to 205. Yeah, I, he, I, says, Joe, he says, Joe, I've never sweat so much in my life. Well, it's not only that, it's just the movement too. You know, I mean, uh, I, I certainly wasn't a, a major athlete, but I played rugby in college and there's, you know, my shoulders and my, and I'm telling you, my back is just from doing it. And I, you know, I didn't really yeah. go into lose, lose weight, but it's the flexibility part of it has just been awesome. Yeah. I've been, uh, believe it or not, I've been thinking about trying that. I've talked to Dallas a bunch of times with it. I said, yeah. I, I'm going to try and do it. I, I just need it for the flexibility aspect of it because you know right after four after 14 surgeries that i've had on my body uh, i could use breaking up a lot of scar tissue you know and uh, yeah okay and, and with and that in mind my- with that in mind joe and I, we didn't even we didn't get to it but i this is probably a good spot yeah worst injury in the ring or what the you know i think it goes off that eye injury which i still cannot believe after what happened to you and then you did a, a bench press uh, exhibition <laughs> so yeah, give me the uh, short version because well, I can let you get you out of here. Yeah, but. well, War, Warlord, uh, we're saying Warlord and Ivan Koloff, and Warlord got me in this mood called Samoan Slam. You know, he, it's yeah. you're kind of wrapped around the guy's body, and he's holding your legs and your head, and he kicks back, and you know, like the Samoans do for most of the Samoans do for their finish. I mean, the Usos do it, and a lot of guys do it, and everything else, right? So he does it to me, but when he does it. He pulls too hard with his right arm, and his left hand slips, and my head moves into the middle of Warlord's back. Ooh. So when he he kicks and lands on his back, he's landing his whole 350 pounds on my head, flat against the canvas. So when it happened, my left eye popped out 
like squeezed your head. It's like back. the like a cartoon. Like, bro, well, yeah, right. Listen, it's like it's, the best way to explain it. It's like like popping a zit. Something it like popped out. out. So, it, it out. It, it came out and it went back in. And when it went back <laughs> okay. in, when it went back in, I didn't find this out till later. It went back in almost an eighth of an inch too far. Okay. <sighs> So, yeah, so I knew something was wrong because I stood up right away and I'm flapping my arms and Hawk goes, what are you doing? So I can't see. And I open up my right eye and I'm seeing four people out of my right eye. Now, talk about concussion syndrome, right? I would have failed it miserably because I'm seeing four out of my right eye and I'm seeing nothing but black out of my left. I said, I can't see out of my eye. And, I, and of course, I go to Hawk. I rolled out of the ring. I said, hey, Hawk, is my eye hanging out my head? He goes, yeah, your head's off your shoulders too. And he throws it back in the ring. <laughs> he thinks I'm kidding. He don't know. And I told him I have a call off. I told I have, I said, I have I messed up, man. Get me out of here. And I went out of here. And when I went back in the locker room, I went to blow my nose. And underneath my eye, left eyeball, my cheek expanded at one inch. Yeah, you're bleeding. Yeah, it's, you got internal well, bleeding. Well, what I did is I blew out that trap door. So oh, I went to Hammond, Indiana Hospital. They didn't have the x-rays to do it. So I went to Chicago General. From that one move, I had a crack in my skull, a fractured cheek, broken nose, and a blown-out orbital rim around my eye. Yeah. So the next best thing to do is go bench press a horse the next yeah. day. Right? Is that the next day? 540 pounds. 545, hmm. yeah. Yeah, best thing to do is a day later, go to Greensboro, fly. <laughs> now, let me tell you what a treat flying was. I don't oh fly my from God. Chicago I can't to Greensboro. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Didn't anyone yeah. give you a? Didn't the uh, ma- a little medical advice here? This could be a serious thing. You can't oh, fly, and so don't lift. Up, uh, don't lift a house. <laughs> I didn't even. I didn't even get any pain medicine. I mean, oh. I flew, and then the next, the two days later, or the next day, I'm doing a bench press contest in Greensboro. So what do I do? I, I push on my cheek and that swollen part. The, I, you can see the corner of my eye was just going. Like a balloon that exhales, it was going in the corner of my cheek, and I painted over top of it, right? And then I go and we lay down and we do the best press contest. Let me tell you something how mind over matter. I'll tell you this right now. When you have 20,000 people all chanting, animal, animal, and you're doing real weights, this wasn't like the WWF weights they did when Dino Bravo had those wooden weights, you know, those wood plates. These were real, real metal to metal plates that we were bench pressing. Was not, you know, was a strong guy. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But you know, for the sake of TV, they did the wooden plates so they can do it. We were using metal weights, oh, yeah. and you could hear them clanking. And I did five forty-five that day, and I'm telling you, I was so psyched up, it went up like a feather. I could have done this. I could have done a hundred pounds more. What did that do but to your eye? <laughs> well, it swell a little bit more, maybe. Wow, bro, it, 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 it watered like crazy. Oh. And then when I got back to the locker room, it was bleeding a little bit and all that stuff. But, you know, he took me off in an ambulance. I mean, I even let Barbarian give me a high boot, same side as my eye, smashed <laughs> my head into the plate, same side as my eye. And then we worked that angle with the war- Barbarian Warlord, mm-hmm. you know, and I got taken off in an ambulance. I was gone. I was supposed to be out six months. But, of course, like every other wrestler, I came back in two and a half months. Yeah. Came back way too early. Yeah. And to this day, my left upper lip and my teeth on my left side are numb because they had, they had operated through my mouth and through my 
eye where it is to replace your little rim. It was, just, it was a mess, bro. And I still deal with it today. And yeah. it's just, it, it was the worst injury I ever had. Wow. All right. Most influential yeah. person in your life. Uh, it was probably my dad. Yeah. Yeah. My dad set my groundwork for my respect and, and, uh, what it takes to be an athlete. You know, he installed it in me at a young age. Nothing comes from hard work. I remember when I was a young kid, I was, you know, I, I grew up in a baseball family. I grew up and I was a catcher. Yeah. I remember growing up and it was baseball, 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 baseball. And my dad being the caliber pitcher he was, you know, every time he would have a casual catch, it was like watching Sandy Koufax playing catch, right? Oh, really? You know? Oh, yeah. Is that he where you got your work ethic too? Yeah, pretty much, man. Because I knew yeah. nothing was going to come easy to me. Yeah, that guy got up every was, day. Yeah. yeah, well, a lot of that was trial and error, too, man. You know, my dad yeah. worked for Honeywell. We made two or three moves along the way. And yeah. imagine moving into a new neighborhood at 15 years old and having to start a new high school. It was pretty rough. You know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. the easiest thing to do. And so, yeah. you know, we, we did it, and, and you, you learn to cope. You know, my right. dad says, I learned to get older. That's why. Listen, when I was younger, my dad ran a boys club yeah. on Frankfurt Avenue in inner city Philadelphia. My oh. brother Johnny and I were the only white kids in the basketball league. Uh-huh. He says, you're going to learn there's no color in our family. You're going to learn to get along with everybody. Cool. Fine. And we were, man. Some of my best friends were black guys with black families. You know, so, I mean. That was just a kind of attitude. My, my dad was way ahead of his time when it came time for people to get along like that. Cause you, now you're, you got to understand, man, you're talking the 70s. Yeah. It was yeah. a violent time in our nation. More violent than, I mean, they say violence is now. They should have been around in the 70s. Maybe the early 70s were very violent right after the Vietnam War. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, it, it was very violent there. So, yeah, we, we learned a couple of things. That was, my, my dad was the one probably was the most influential. Uh, you may have touched on this, but uh, what profession would you have gone into if you hadn't gone into wrestling? Like, how would have you made a living? Do you think? Oh, football, football. Yeah, definitely. I would have tried football. Yeah, I had a lot of guys that I knew that I played junior college ball with, where I was captain of my junior college team. Like, even like Dan Johnson played receivers on Miami Dolphins, and Dan Marino played there. Uh, he was he was my teammate, and he told me all the time. I saw Joe. He was. You screwed up by getting your girlfriend pregnant because you you got to definitely pray. Okay. Listen, out of junior college, I was benching 500 pounds. I was an offensive guard. Oh, jeez. I, mean, I, mean, I, yeah. I was under a 5 flat 40 guy. I was like a 40 40 and playing, playing offensive guard, which is unheard of back then, you know? And, uh, and I love football, man. I have a great respect for football. Yeah. Don't like a lot of the things that are going on today in the league, but I like yeah. football. Well, you did all right, kid. Uh, I think you did okay. Uh, and the last question here, Joe, uh, uh, what would what do you see as the, the shining moment? And I, you may have touched on it already with uh, talking about the Hall of Fame, but really, what what when you look back, what was there a moment when it just all came together? I think, bro. I think you know at the time, uh, even though our business is entertainment, I think that the Hall of Fame induction was like a culmination of everything you did and all your hard work. You know what I mean? And it's not just the WWE Hall of Fame. There was another pro wrestling Hall of Fame that was in the, I think, Elizabeth, New York, or somewhere like that. Now it's down in Dallas. Yeah. And that pro wrestling Hall of Fame down there, you're voted in by your peers. You're voted in by, 
like J.J. Dillon runs it and you're voted in by the Funks and you know, Jerry Briscoe and that, you're, you're voted in by your guys that have paved the way before you. So that means a lot for yeah. the guys, yeah. your, your peers, you know, it's like a real yeah. Hall of Fame. And then you have the WD Hall of Fame, which is, the, is like the Entertainment Hall of Fame. And it was great because I got to go in with Drew Carey and Axel Jim Duggan went into my year and Shawn Michaels went into my year and stuff like that. So that was awesome. The only thing missing is I wish Hawk would have been there. Yeah. But, you know, just making it, just making it to the big dance and the WWF <laughs> slash WWE was the big thing for me, too. And to be in their Hall of Fame, bro, and, and, and you know, it was the fans have a lot to do with writing in to see who they want in, too. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, and, 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 bro, it all goes back to our beginning of our conversation. It's the fans, the fans, the fans. Uh, it's yeah. always been and always been about the yeah. fans. Yeah, three things, fans, the fans, or the fans. <laughs> yeah, no, bro, you, yeah. you have to have that in your heart, your soul, and your blood to yeah. entertain the fans. And that's, you know, and that's what it's all about. Uh, great insight from road warrior animal Joe Laurinaitis. Uh, I loved our conversation and uh, really uh, enjoyed listening to his answers uh, to his many fans. He is a great guy. Uh, Tito Santana is also a, a, an incredible individual. And he is someone, you know, I hadn't talked to since I had left the WWF, or WWE, we should say. And, you know, uh, a lot had transpired in his life since then. Uh, he was still succeeding, though, at whatever he was going after. And, I mean, if you remember listening to that episode, he talked about, uh, you know, how focused he was about his family and putting his kids through school. And they went to some very prestigious schools, and they are all really, really successful. Uh, did you know, though, that he had been a, a teacher for a couple of decades, uh, and I, you know, I, you know, thinking about it, going, uh, looking, looking back at it, I think that part of his life, uh, helping kids, even after all he accomplished in the ring, I think he's also incredibly proud of what he's accomplished in the classroom, teaching children. And here are just some of the questions that he answered. Well, pretty much all of them uh, that he answered from some of his many fans. Take a listen. If you've got a few minutes here, though, when we put this up on, on Facebook, on our Facebook page, uh, we've got a ton of questions. And I, I whittled out a bunch of them. But I'll just kind of rapid fire a few at you if you've got time, because these folks would love to hear th some of these answers. Uh, Richard Land, uh, does Tito wish he had run as a heel in the WWF? Do you had an incredible how, – how many wrestlers stay a heel – I mean, stay a, a, a babyface their entire career? Uh, but could you have had it any other way, and would you have – like to have been a heel at some point just for fun. Well, I don't, I don't know if you remember when me, me and Rick Martell split up. I, I asked Vince if, if I could be the heel, and, and Vince said no. So I, I, I would <laughs> have, wouldn't have it. I would have liked to. I would have liked to have uh, been the heel. All right. Uh, did he take offense when they called Razor Ramon the first Latino Intercontinental Champ? Do you, you even remember that? No. Yeah. No, I don't oh, okay. know Here's if, a, if you he, know, yeah. I'm the one that gave Razor his name. <laughs> really? I did yeah. not know that. Uh, yeah. How did it come I, about? I, 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 well, uh, Kurt took Vince, took, took uh, Razor to talk to Vince. They, they had already practiced, practiced the gimmick. So right. I, I'm, uh, in the I'm in the urinal in the bathroom urinating. And the razor comes up. He says, "Tito, I need a Spanish name, something to run, uh, something to run, uh, rhyme with the razor." 
And I, as I'm peeing right there, I go, Ramon. And he, and he runs out of the, out of the bathroom and, and he mentions that from time to time when he sees me. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So how did you come up with the flying forearm? Where'd that come from? That's from Steve Golak. Uh, I don't know. I, I used to do a flying body press, uh, where you just come across with a body and then I don't know why uh, one day I just, uh, threw the forearm to the neck and it, it, it you know, worked pretty good. So, you know, it, it just, uh, it just happened. I, I, I've never seen anybody do it like the way I used to do it. Yeah. Oh, it got over. Okay. Uh, is there anybody that you never had a match with, but wish you would have gotten the opportunity? This is from Dan Loftus. Mm, no, anybody you left with Matt? No, I, I, I pretty much wrestled everybody that I that I that I wanted to wrestle. I mean, Tully and Ted and Terry Funk and Dory and. You know, I, I wrestle against all. I guess you know when you're when you're in the business for you know 17 years straight. Yeah, at some uh, point, yeah. You know, I pretty much wrestled everybody that that that, that came through New York anyway. Yeah. Okay. There were a lot Car- of guys that, that were in the South that I did not get to meet. Yeah. All right, Chris Carbellic, uh Did you like shooting? We mentioned this, the El Matador vignettes, and any memories of uh, that stand out. From those, did, did I like the vignettes? Yeah, I mean, did you enjoy shooting them? And then, uh, uh, any memories that stand out from those? Uh, I I love those vignettes. You know, yeah. uh, the way the way the way the vignettes, the way the presentation was. You know, I feel that. I mean, personally, I, I can see how I did the gimmick uh, El Matador in the ring. Uh, if I, if I did justice to the gimmick, uh, in the ring, but I do know that, uh, the vignettes, man, they were so good. Uh, they, they were perfect. Yeah. And that training, uh, how intense was that? Did you, with the, it was when pretty, you were there? it was pretty, yeah. it was pretty intense, you know, because yeah. I thought that I thought that I was going to, uh, go up against a, a big bull. I ended up, you know, having a you know, uh, address a little bull, but he was a little bull, not the big ones. Thank God. <laughs> Still had big horns. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, uh, let's see here. Oh, this is a good one. Thoughts on beating undertaker. You mentioned this in Barcelona, Spain in October of 91. So, uh, Ryan, uh, smotch. sounds looks like there remembers that match. Just like I told you that they gave me the keys to Tucson, they, they gave me yeah. the, the uh, I was the main event uh, in, in Barcelona. That, uh, that's where they had just had the, the Olympics. And and we, me, me and uh, The Undertaker were the main event, and we sold out. It was completely sold out. Yeah, how many, like I was wondering, how big a crowd was that? It was like 18,000 people. Yeah, wow. You know, and, and it was a, it, it was a great, great crowd. So I knew that, uh, I was on the verge of, of, of starting to get a, you know, another big push. You know, I, I thought I was going to get a big push, you know, and, yeah. and everything was pointing to, to, for me getting a big push. Uh, maybe not, 
maybe not uh, the world championship title, but, uh, you know, you, you could be involved in an angle, you know, uh, without a title, you know, angles got over without titles. Yeah. Uh, but it just never, nothing after that, you know, the next, the next time we went to Barcelona, uh, I think it was like six months later and Bret Hart wrestled, uh, um, God, who was the guy that hit the flames? Uh, uh, heavy set guy that hit the oh, flames Bam Bam? passed away. Yeah, Bam, Bam, Bam Bam Bigelow. Bigelow. They were the yeah. main, they were the main event. I was in the middle of a card, uh, a, a no nothing match. And, uh, I think they had maybe 8,000 people, you know, so, yeah. uh, yeah. it just showed that I, you know, I, I was drawing some, some Hispanics in Barcelona. All right. Tito, last two here, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, did you, you had a, a very brief run with WCW, WCW. Why didn't you make a big move down there? And did they want you there? Yeah. Phil Russo, uh, had, made the showed interest of talking to me uh but i i just told him you know i i once i left the wwf i wasn't interested in being on the road anymore i had spent you know all those yeah. years on the road away yeah. from my family i yeah i wouldn't mind going being gone a weekend here a weekend there but you know i was done with the business uh, full time all right that was greg wilson and the last one here jason monroe Wants to know if you if you follow the current product, and if so, what are your impressions? No, I, I don't follow the the current product. I I, I never watch it. Uh, you know, once in a while, if I if, if I'm channel surfing and you know, I try to see some of the work. There there are a few workers, but you know, it, the business has changed. You know, I I, I, I don't want to knock, uh, but you know, the wrestlers now, the majority of the wrestlers. There's a few wrestlers that that. Uh, that are old school, but the majority of the wrestlers will never learn because they don't have the teachers like we had. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. had guys that, 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 that taught us everything. I yeah. Mean, old school. We learned psychology, psychology for masters. Yeah. Yeah. And it would come up through generations of wrestling. It's a lot different yep. today. You know, that is pretty much the standard answer. When you talk to the superstars of the eighties and nineties, that, you know, that, a, that professional wrestling is very different than what it was back during the era that we all remember so fondly. It's the same thing. You know, talk to Major League Baseball players or talk to NFL players. They always say, it's nothing like it was when I played. But, you know, the, you know they do have a point in, in some ways. But I, I know they also all agree that there is some tremendous talent in the WWE right now. And, uh, you know, these these guys are, are going to do some tremendous things. And, you know, it gets ebb and flow, you know, up and down. And I think that the, the WWE's got a lot going on right now. All right, this next clip uh, features someone that I never got the chance to work with back when he was headlining the ring in the uh, WCW. Uh, but we've had a chance, you know, since then to become really good friends. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page. Now, he was one of my first guests when we started inviting guests onto the podcast. And uh, DDP definitely did not disappoint. Now, I'm not sure why this story that you're about to hear did not end up in the original airing of the podcast, but it's I, I found this, and it's still a great story. I was asked Casey, I'm like, how did we not put this in there? But uh, now we have the chance to share it, and it's a story about how his wife uh, uh, at the time, Kimberly, ended up posing for Playboy. This is like 
95 and they're still not doing anything with me yet mm-hmm. so my wife at the time kimberly she'd done like playboy celebrity not playboy celebrity she did playboy blondes Moonets, and redheads and another one was a, another thing like topless you know like classy pictures and yeah. they saw her on tv with me <clears throat> excuse me so so they ask her if she'll pose in Playboy celebrity nudes. Uh-huh. It's going to come out in 96. But we'd also like your husband in it. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean they want me in it? Uh-huh. She goes, yeah, like you're wearing a towel and you're massaging me down before the match. Uh-huh. And then we take some other fun shots. So we did these shots. They loved them. She was yeah. supposed to get two pages. They wanted six. <laughs> so we went back. Where I'm, I'm, I'm putting on my boots, right? And she's just about to put on a dress. You know, and really classy, sexy, naked pictures. And the first one is her on the first two pages. On the, whatever the page started, the spread started with me with a cigar in my mouth a towel on massaging her and the next page was a two page spread, which was her like on her hands and knees. <laughs> and I'm telling Bischoff about it. Yeah. And, and he's like, are you crazy? <laughs> You've got a morality clause. You signed. They uh, could fire you over this. Uh, I said, Eve, you're not doing anything with me anyway. Uh, I said, Maybe Vince will do something with it. It'll blow up, yeah. And <laughs> next thing you know, it's part of the angle. Uh, short and sweet, but uh, what a great story. And that, uh, as he said, was certainly uh, a great uh, one, uh, gorgeous angle, uh, if you're uh, keeping score here. Anyway, so uh, I intend to include uh, questions for my guests. We're going to keep doing this every week. I love it. And uh, it gives our listeners a chance to, you know, I'm a, I'm a tremendous interview. I know I interview. I know that, uh, but, uh, I know there may be a few questions I might miss here and there. And so I love, I love the opportunity. I love when people send me questions because some of them are, you know, kind of out there and, you know, I love random. I love to get off the tracks. So we're, we're absolutely going to keep doing that. Um, when, when, when primetime with Sean Mooney debuts on Podbean, that is happening uh, next week. I've got more details coming up, but, uh, my first guest uh, for this move we're, go- we're going to be making uh, next Wednesday is none other than the legendary broadcaster Jim Ross. And um, I hope you will have uh, signed on by then so you do not miss the great conversation we had. But to you know, stay with our theme here and to give you an idea of uh, what a great chat we had, um, I pulled a section, we pulled a section of some of the questions that I, I threw at Jim from some of his many, many fans who put them up on our Facebook page. Uh, Just take a listen to JR's answers. This is a great question from Yusuf Zayazabir. If you could invite any four celebrities slash wrestlers to dinner, who would they be and why? Oh, goodness gracious. Well, you know, you have to... Muhammad Ali, maybe. I know he was somebody you spent time with. You'd like to see him again. Yeah, I was... Muhammad was phenomenal. How blessed was I to see him? Well, Muhammad would be uh, for the not for non-family members. It would 
by Mickey Mantle, Muhammad Ali, uh, Stone Cold, uh-huh. and quite frankly, because uh, he's so uh, diverse, uh, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, yeah. What about you know? I'd love to be at a uh, tape with. Thinking, if I was thinking with my, in another vernacular, it would be. Uh, oh, I'd say here. Let's think of some. Uh, Tory Wilson. Uh, pick three, because they would, you know, the uh, at my at my stage of life, being surrounded by four beautiful women in the kitchen ain't a bad deal. <laughs> I've, I've set my expectations down. I didn't say that four in my bedroom or something ridiculous of the, uh, right. you know, a real eyeball roller, but four women in my kitchen preparing food would be kind of a euphoric, shall yeah. we say. Very cool. Uh, you know, and I would love, and you mentioned it in the book, and I don't know if a, a, a lot of people really understand how much of a wrestling fan Muhammad Ali was, but he, you know, credits Gorgeous George for his early years of getting the ideas of the, the way he uh, did promos or cut promos, as we say. I would love to to be at a table and have seen Muhammad Ali and Freddie Blassie together. I think that that would have been awesome. They were buddies. They were big yeah. buddies, and yeah. a lot. I of spent Freddy's... a lot of time with Freddie, and he he was just an incredible oh, uh, human God. being. But I would have loved to hear that discussion. Freddie, uh, Freddie's another guy that talked lo- uh, heel villain logic. Yeah, yeah, and the ability to sell tickets by verbalizing. So uh, Muhammad listened to Freddie at isolated stops here, there, and yon. Yeah, because as you could probably gather, Muhammad. I can tell you from experience, was not the kind of guy that was going to hang around the hotel room when we weren't booked. He went out of the room and out in the, with amongst the people, no matter yeah. what. It was never ending. It was nonstop. The, he, his, he was just, if I, that's probably one of my, my biggest regret. I'll tell you, my, that, this was my biggest regret in the business. I was his uh, escort, caretaker, concierge, valet, whatever. And we shared a suite, as the book says, had a common living area, and uh, I didn't take one frigging note, didn't record one sound bite, uh, no didn't pick. do anything. And I was nope. just sick of that because it was that was my. I, I, I even had a title for the book: my 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 three days with a champ. Oh man! And you should have taken Elvis's suit. Yeah, man. My mother, she, <laughs> I, I really. That was a hard one there, boy. Can you imagine what that'd be worth now? Oh my goodness, folks! Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned this is that when uh, when when Jim went out to I think it was L.A. Yep. and uh, he had his house in Los Angeles, and he w- had all this stuff just laying around, and he says to to Jim, "Hey, you want that?" And it was uh, one of Elvis's jumpsuits he gave him after a show in Vegas, and you being the gentleman. You uh, you are uh, said I couldn't possibly. Do you think about that? <laughs> I called uh, I called uh, my mother collect from his phone so that I would have his phone phone number because <laughs> it was show for our phone bill. And I asked her about Elvis's gold jumpsuit. It had not even been cleaned since the performance. Yeah. Oh. And wow. uh, sweat on it. Yeah. DNA. So um, she said, "You cannot. Don't you bring that here? Don't you? You know, I got to." I got lectured. I was in a thirty-something years old. I said, "Okay." So anyhow, I mission accomplished on the number re- retrieval, 
and then, uh, but I didn't, I didn't make it out with the gold, with the jumpsuit. It was folded up in a box with his arm hanging out the side. It was just, he had so many things from so many kings and queens and emperors and sheikhs and this and da da da, prime ministers. It was, and they're stacked everywhere. Yeah, the damnedest thing I've ever seen. So it's, it's just, uh, it, it's just a. Uh, if they ever have a Muhammad Ali museum with with that stuff in it, it'll be a it'll be a wonderful exhibit. Yeah. Uh, was that and because it was prior to the the WWE, uh, kind of your first experience where you were around a human being where, uh, I, I don't even know if you could describe the fame. Oh yeah, no no. Surrounding him, yeah. you saw it later with with some of the other superstars, but that must have just been an unbelievable. No, there's only one Muhammad Ali. Seriously, he he had the aura. He had the aura of charisma that's hard to define. You yeah. couldn't take your eyes off of him. You talk about Braun Strowman earlier, Sean and uh, Roman. They, they're the kind of guys that if they walk through an airport. Even the the most of macho men are gonna give him a second look. Like, Who's that big bastard? Wow, that, that kind of deal, right? This is what we do. So, uh, and of course, then the women and the kids, the child, they're even bigger. Remember that? Yeah. So, uh, and daddy, he take me to the wrestling. Yeah. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, here comes you sell instead of selling daddy's ticket, you sell like uh, four tickets. And the last question, uh, Jim, I promise you, because <laughs> I've kept you a while. But um, and, and I really find this I, th- really interesting, especially in, in your case with, with Vince. And this is from Andrew Skaggs. Is there any stories of, of J.R. and Vince butting heads on talent or storyline? And I, I, uh, I preface this because I think may, like maybe Bill Watts could be credited with, with, with preparing you because they're, you know, uh, you hear people say, well, if you just stand up to Vince, he respects you. It's not, it's, it has nothing to do with, maybe that's some little element, but there's so many other, uh, you know, so much more psychology in there. If you broke it down, I don't know, but there's not, not many human beings on this planet were able to really be that close in the orbit. So, uh, can you talk about that relationship? Were there times when you, you stood up and, and, you know, really butted heads it, but kept well, you find out, out that uh, look, partnerships are not all about confrontation. Uh-huh. Partnerships are not about all about who's got the biggest uh, package. Yeah, uh, we communicated. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, I think I know he respects to this very day my opinion, mm-hmm. and I know that uh, in those days he looked at me as a very valuable piece of his management team. Uh, and I thought he had a very good judge and taste. I agree yeah. with him. Yeah. I was ready for the role. <laughs> uh, and I had a wife that let me leave all my fa- fantasies out of working 12, 14 hour days and doing all this crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this night, we, here's the thing, man, how, how stupid do people think I am? <laughs> what is, I don't even know what stand up to him means. Do I yeah. bow up, stand up? Are we sitting down now? Are we, are we <laughs> 20 paces? What are we doing here standing up? Yeah. Uh, if it's verbally, yeah, we have plenty of uh, differences of opinion. More often than not, his idea won, unless yeah. he thought my idea was better. 
Well, and, and I think know, it comes down to it that no matter what, you delivered exactly what you thought. Yeah, you know? and I, and I, here's the thing. I, here's, I used to, every talent, when they would say, I'm going to go see Vince, JR. Have at it, pal. Good luck. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Now, you want some advice, or are you going to just do this un, un, unprepared? Because they said you could, I said you could very easily go in there and, uh, and, and sew your sheets. Yeah. Yeah, what are you, you going to tell me? Converse, don't confront. Mm. You may go. You may go. Thank you. Uh, Converse, that, don't with, confront. You know, that was definitely part of our conversation when uh, JR and I talked that, uh, you know, about how people get along with Vince because uh, there's not many, as I have talked about uh, over these podcasts, that, that can do that for a very long period of time. There's a, there are very few people that have been able to do that. Uh, Jim have, has a, a very special relationship with Vince McMahon, and uh, he, he, he has a, quite a philosophy there, and I think it's pretty true when he talks about converse, don't confront. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, that would, that's just a very small fraction of the conversation I had with Jim Ross. Uh, he answered uh, many more questions, and we got into a lot during that conversation. Uh, don't know if you had the chance to uh, pick up a copy of uh, JR's book, Slobberknocker, My Life in Wrestling. Uh, but let me tell you, it, it is definitely a good read. You can pick that up, you know, on Amazon or any one of those uh, those book sites. But um, really, it, it's a really good book uh, if you like uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff in the WWE and, uh, you know, a lot of other wrestling operations he was involved with, uh, including the WCW. Now, if you want to hear the entire conversation, uh, please join us on Podbean, as I've mentioned. To subscribe, all you have to do, we're going to make it real easy for you, is go to our website, Primetime Mooney. That's primetimemooney.com. And, uh, folks, uh, full disclosure here. I'm going to uh, do a Facebook Live to explain this more this week. But, um, as I mentioned, I already uh, went out and told everybody about this before. And, uh, like, I, I want to be completely, uh, you know, transparent on all this. Now, I had originally said that the price is going to be a dollar, 99 cents, a dollar. But uh, I should have waited before releasing that information because I soon found out that there are a lot of other fees that need to be paid when you go premium. Uh, fees that include uh, revenue sharing with your podcast site, uh, Podbeam. They, they get a nice chunk. And then, of course, uh, you probably don't uh, remember that you know, the people that, that process all those uh, credit cards or debit cards, uh, they get a piece too. So uh, with all that said, um, and believe me, we, we went through this up and down, but, uh, with that said, we're going to be charging a dollar 99 a month now, uh, $1 and 99 cents. I mean, if you don't break it down though, you know, it's, it's 50 cents a podcast and folks, believe me, we tried everything, as I said, uh, to keep it as low as we could. And I, uh, I hope you will subscribe and continue to come along with us for this journey. So once again, it is a dollar 99 a month. Uh, it is month to month. Uh, you can cancel at any time. There's no lengthy contract or anything like that. Um, but uh, like I said, I hope you're you're going to join us for this because we've got so much ahead uh, with this podcast. So many great guests and uh, so many great giveaways. We're just going to have a lot of fun. Uh, once again, all you have to do is go to primetimemooney.com. Uh, we also, oh yeah, this is another great uh, uh, thing that we've done right now is uh, we have uh, at that website, primetimemooney.com, we put all of our previous episodes with all of our guests up there 
and you can listen for free. If there's a, if you aren't caught up or the, if there's an episode you haven't heard yet, even uh, maybe after hearing uh, some of the uh, Q&A with these superstars, you want to hear that, that entire episode, uh, you can go to primetimemooney.com and we've got all of the episodes with the guests up there. Okay. Okay, so this is our bonus episode here on MLW uh, Radio Network, and I think we should call this one, we're, we're calling this one the uh, Q&A uh, bonus special, and uh, of course that included that uh, the vaulted material that we had from the superstars left over some, for some of the conversations. But along the way, you know, people have sent me emails and, you know, asked me to answer questions during the podcast, and uh, one of the biggest advocates for that has been uh, my producer, Casey Jerome Beck who, uh, you know, has wanted to ask me some questions of his own. And then also we put out the word that if people had some questions that they wanted to ask me, this is a good chance to do it. Okay, so I'm going to bring on uh, our producer, Casey Jerome Beck. And Casey, I know you've been uh, hard at work collecting uh, all of these uh, fine questions. You've gone through them with a fine-tooth comb. I know there's some that you had to uh, toss <laughs> yep. because they didn't make sense or whatever. But anyway, I know you've got a good collection. So you're ready for this? I am ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for the gauntlet? I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, uh, it's uh, always the, when you're on the other side of uh, you know, <laughs> questioning, it's a little more uh, nerve wracking. Exactly. But, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll answer as many as we can before sure. we uh, get to the end of this. So fire away. All right. So the first one talks about Coliseum videos. And I saw, you know, there was a bunch of videos online of all the Coliseum videos you did where they just showed the skits that you guys did. And they were hilarious. Yes. So James Gain asked, what's your favorite Coliseum video that you did? Oh, man. Well, you know, the one I've seen lately is the Star Trek one. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I don't remember what the name of the, the Coliseum video was. Um, but that was a lot of fun to do because, uh, you know, we, we, uh, had a, a really fun set they put together for us. We all got to wear the, the, those, uh, strange looking outfits that they put us in. And we really had a great time doing it, kind of doing a spoof on Star Trek and, uh, even had some of the people in, in, in makeup, but, and Alfred and I really had fun doing it. They beam us down to the planet. Mm-hmm. And also if people remember in there, we had, uh, some of the superstars do some of the bits and play uh, office. One of my favorite was Ric Flair and, and uh, Mr. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So I think if I was going to say one that was really my favorite, it would have probably just for the, the sake of the, you know, of uh, doing the, you know, the, the, the skits with them was, was that one. Um, the other one I did was where I, I dressed up was kind of a Sergeant Slaughter spoof. It was a military and I've got a couple of pictures. I'm going to release some of those. But uh, that was fun, too. I kind of did this patent thing at the beginning of it with mm-hmm. the big American flag behind me. So uh, we had a blast. And whenever I got to do anything with Alfred, we just we laughed through it. So right. uh, it's hard to arrow him down. Talk a little bit about the production of those. How long did they usually take? You know, uh, we we were really, really efficient. I mean, we we shot pretty much everything would be one day. And there might be, gosh, I mean, you go through those. There might be 10, 12, 14 sometimes right. uh, on cameras for those between, between the bridges because they had a lot of matches on those Coliseum videos. And, uh, yeah, they were really long production days, but we would everything had to be shot in a day because everybody was, uh, you know, going off somewhere or traveling, and uh, we would have to, to get it done no matter what. 
Yeah. And there were a few times where it was late into the night. We were at the production facility or wherever we were doing. We did stuff on location. It was like, okay, we were not leaving until we're done. So <laughs> you guys better get it right. Yeah. Uh, and with with the scripts on those, uh, how much how much leeway were you given to improvise on those? Uh, uh, not just like reading the script, but like your mannerisms and things like that. How did they let you kind of do what you want as long as you follow the script? Or there was really uh, for most of that stuff, there really wasn't a script. Okay, uh, especially in the early days of shooting those, because I've mentioned before that. Um, you know, when they first started the Coliseum videos, uh, the the WWF, WWE didn't really know what they had. They had no idea how people were going to react to, uh, you know, and, and buy them. They didn't really have a clue. Mm-hmm. And because I think, you know, the deal was struck with Coliseum video and they figured, well, you know what the heck, we'll, do, we'll give it a shot. And then that stuff just took off. And, of course, that was also, if you remember, uh, that period of the, the, the folks that were you know, Casey probably wasn't even born yet, but they had, uh, you know, video stores everywhere. This was even before Blockbuster. And, you know, Blockbuster was the big, uh, you know, store that uh, had all of the videotapes. You would actually, listen to this, actually have to get in your car and go to one of these stores. And you would basically, it's like going to a library. You would rent these, the copies of these movies for a price, Mm -hmm. and then you'd have to bring them back. And uh, they didn't realize just how much of a, how crazed that became. And then of course, Blockbuster came along, which made it even you know bigger, mm-hmm. these stores all over the United States. And the WWF uh, charged a lot for these tapes because they knew that these video stores would uh, be able to rent them and, and make money on them. So these tapes, and back then even, were $80, $100 a copy because they knew that these uh, video stores were going to rent them for two, three dollars a pop, and they were going to make their money back on it, and then some. Mm-hmm. So it was a really uh, great time for uh, video sales for the WWF. And then once uh, w- once the uh, it really took off, then they started to pay attention to what we were doing. Before that, you know, Vince had no idea. It was just like have Mooney and Alfred uh, do something, mm-hmm. and we literally would go to, uh, you know, into the prop closet. And find whatever whatever the theme was, and we would just grab stuff and go out and do these bridges. Yeah. Well, after it really took off, then they became, you know, a lot more concerned. I remember one time a phone call came over, and it was basically like Vince was like, "What the hell are they doing?" <laughs> As he looked at some of the stuff, but people loved it. So, uh, yeah. Then it got a lot stricter. Then there was scripts involved. Then there was more people on the set, and there was more people telling us what to do. And I don't know if the material suffered any more for it, but we didn't have as much fun. Sure. But uh, it was it was still great. All right. So Richard Hooper asks uh, if you could tell us a few more stories about Lord Alfred Hayes. I know you guys did a lot of videos together, and you've talked uh-huh. about him many times on this show. What are some interesting stories you got on Mr. Alfred Hayes? Wow. Uh, well, as I've mentioned before that uh, we all lived in Stanford, Connecticut at the time. And the staff was pretty small. Um, it wasn't a very big staff at all. We all knew each other because we lived within you know, a couple of miles. Everybody lived around the studio. The main television facility was right there. And, it, and Stanford wasn't this booming city, so there wasn't a whole lot to do. So we And everybody hung out together. Kevin Dunn, who you know basically runs... Uh, the television side of of uh, 
the WWE now was just a producer then. And we basically, they had one room that they would produce all these shows and it was basically one staff and, uh, Alfred lived there too. And so we were on call to do whatever they needed done. Uh, we, he hosted, you know, different shows. We did, uh, you know, these countdown shows there, everything was done there. So, uh, to make the point here is that we all were around each other a lot and I became really, really close to, uh, Alfred, uh, and, uh, you know, Gorilla Monsoon used to, was up there every couple of weeks, but Alfred and I used to hang out quite a bit and he was basically my wrestling mentor. I knew nothing really about the business when I got there and he, along with Gorilla, took me under their wing. But Alfred was a blast. And I'm, I'll tell a story that I have never really told. I think maybe in a couple of places. But Alfred um, had this big, giant, blue Continental that he had kind of taken over from. Vince had had, it had been one of his cars. And it was parked in one of the parking lots for a long time, just sitting there. It was a big Continental. And Alfred asked him, well, is, you know, is anyone going to be using that vehicle in uh they're like, no, whatever. So he took it and he had it detailed and all cleaned up and fixed up. And so he used to drive this thing around Stanford. And I think it was powder blue. It was just <laughs> a ridiculous looking car. But we used to hang out in Norwalk, which was right uh, near Stanford. And there was a whole string of bars down there that we used to hang out. And Alfred uh, was, as you could imagine, could was very good at chatting up the ladies. And uh, we would go out. And remember, I remember one evening we met these nannies. Now, if you know anything about that area back in the Northeast, there is, uh, you know, very a very affluent area. Greenwich, Connecticut is right there. And they would basically import these nannies to come over and take care of their children. Well, they would get to go out maybe one night a week, maybe Friday or something. And so we got to know these ladies and they would come out. Uh, and they took, uh, they became very close to Alfred because he was from the homeland, from their country. And of course, he was quite the charmer. So Alfred would drive around Norwalk and Stanford with, in this big giant continental with all these nannies. And we, <laughs> they were like his brood. And we'd have, we'd have parties and he'd show up and he'd have like six or seven of them with him. And uh, he just he just loved every minute of it. That That is a really fond memory uh, I have of Alfred. I, um, uh, on the other side of it, um, there was, he, uh, w was going to lunch one time, one day with one of our producers, Kevin Granith. And a lot of people don't know that, uh, he had, he had problems with his legs anyway. Everything is, you know, with wrestlers is fused mm -hmm. and, uh, one of his ankles was fused and, uh, you know, he had issues. Well, he was, uh, they were crossing a road and he was struck by a car, went over the hood of this car and, uh, you know, he'd taken so many bumps in his life that, uh, he didn't make any, uh, real notice of it, but he was, he was, uh, badly hurt. And months later, uh, found out that he had broken a couple of things, but, you know, it just shows you how tough these guys are and they just keep going. Uh, Alfred was always a blast as I talked about shooting with him when we used to go out and do these, uh, these crazy shoots. Uh, one time we were out in a van and the whole premise was we were trying to get somewhere to meet one of the superstars and in this van, I, I had, uh, absconded this van for the day 
and uh, it kept breaking down. And uh, we had a <clears throat> situation where he is underneath, and I'm supposed to be handing him uh, tools. And I uh, shoot, I dropped the wrench, it hit him right in the forehead. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> and and what's so funny with Alfred is that you would have thought at that point, because I'd never heard him utter an expletive. Mm-hmm. And all he said was, Drat, can you adjust your aim? <laughs> and that was Alfred. But I have, a, I have thousands of stories. And I, I, one day I, I want to do a, an, an entire podcast. It is a, it is a damn shame mm-hmm. that his lordship is not in the, the WWE Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And that, that, is, uh, that is just an injustice. He really, really needs to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Now, you were mentioning that uh, Alfred Hayes was one of your mentors when you first came into the WWF, WWE, yeah. as it were. Um, talk a little bit about how you got into the WWF. Talk about, um, uh, was it was it on your radar at all? Did you ever watch wrestling? What was your impression when they approached you and you went in there to do the audition and so forth? Well, uh, I can't say it was on my radar, but you have to remember at this point in time, this is about... 80, 1985, I was living in New York City working there. And, uh, you know, of course, New York was the center of the universe for as far as uh, what was happening at the time. And the WWF was exploding and it was going mainstream in a hurry. And that's when you had, you know, the rock and wrestling and you had uh, Lou Albano involved and Cindy Lauper and all that. So you knew, I, I knew all about it uh, from MTV and uh, all that happening. Mm-hmm. And I had, was working at the time for Major League Baseball Productions and were, was working on a, a, a television show called Light Moments in Sports. And I did a segment on uh, wrestling, on professional wrestling. I went to the Monster Factory in, uh, in New Jersey, uh, Larry Sharp's uh, Monster Factory. And he was a good sport and let me come in there and do, you know, a, a comical bit. And... Uh, it aired on one of the networks there in the New York area. And, uh, either, you know, the, the, the legend goes that Vince saw it. I don't know if he actually saw it, but somebody did with the WWF and brought it to his attention. And I had a friend of mine who had worked at Major League Baseball who was working at the WWF at the time. And he called me up and said, Vince McMahon wants you to come up to Stanford to audition uh, for one of their announcing positions. I'm like, mm-hmm. what? What? Really? Uh, because it was just totally, you know, out of the, I didn't, uh, you know, hadn't sent a tape or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They just happened to catch that segment that I did. And so I, within a couple of weeks, I went up there and I did the, uh, you know, sell me the broom audition. And two weeks later they called me and said, do you want to come work here? So it was, uh, and I think that one of the reasons that maybe I did well in that audition because well, first of all, I, I'd always done my homework, so I, I did do a lot of uh, you know studying before I had gone up there and knew all, what was going on. I knew about the company, mm-hmm. but I think it was that it was uh, you know it's just like what, what I, I have a shot at this. I mean, I'm just going to be just you know go crazy, do be myself, and, and just go for it. And I actually ended up doing an extra skit that I had just made up on my way up on the train from New York City. And uh, I talked to uh, uh, Bruce later, and he he said he remembered that. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. So mm-hmm. there you go. The next day it was uh, I was up there, and, and the rest is history. 
but it's, uh, it was a strange way to enter. But that's the way my entire career has gone, Casey. Everything that uh, I've never done anything the way that you would think that the path traveled for a, mm-hmm. a, a talent on TV would have gone. Yeah, it just, you know, I mentioned this to you at one point. I said, you know, it's interesting that you went from Major League Baseball to the WWF, WWE, uh, and then now you're in, you've been in TV news for how long now? You know, it's just interesting that you've gone yeah. from one extreme to the other, back to the other, you know? That's the way it's always been, though. I mean, you look at it, if anybody looked at my resume, you're like, well, how in the hell did you end up there? <laughs> I mean, I went to, I got out of college uh, when I was 22, and I, uh, had worked on a show out here that they had were shooting from uh, New York City. And that's how I ended up with Major League Baseball. They shot a show out in Arizona called The Baseball Bunch. Mm-hmm. And I got on as a production assistant and kept bugging them, you know, that I wanted a job. And, uh, you know, every time somebody from New York, one of the big wigs would come out, I'd make sure I got him my stupid-looking resume that had nothing on it. But I think I was just a pest enough, or I was persistent, I think that's a better word, mm-hmm. that after uh, they left and packed up and got back to New York City, uh, a few weeks later, they said, if you get out here, we'll give you a job. So sure. I packed three bags, and I went to New York City, had never been there in my entire life, and uh, and just uh, one thing led to another. I was uh, producing highlight films after a year. It was just a great place to learn how to put TV together, and then I got a chance to get in front of the camera. Nice. We'll move on now. Michael Busiaco, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, yeah. Will you please talk about Murray Hodgson? And for a little bit of background, Murray uh-huh. Hodgson was a WWF employee who claimed that he was fired uh, because he refused homosexual advances from people like Terry Garvin, Pat Patterson. Uh, there was a there was a big thing on the Donahue show back in '92. Uh, where I believe Hodgson and Vince and I don't know who else is on the show, but that's where it all came out. Can you tell us a little more about Murray in general and then about this uh, controversy as well? Yeah, well, uh, that is a a name from the past. And uh, yeah, a lot of people have asked me about this guy over the years and um, they they don't really have the story. so maybe I can kind of, I can set it somewhat straight here. Uh, Murray, from what I remember, was a radio personality in Detroit or something. I I don't know where how he uh, you know came to Vince's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he had sent a tape in or something. And and you know uh, Vince was always looking for somebody different. You know different people. And uh, for some reason, they thought this guy might be, you know, worth bringing in. So they they brought him in. At that time, uh, I'd been doing the event center for a few years, and I wanted to do other things. You know, I, I didn't mind doing the event center, but it uh, it was so intense. I would be working four or five days a week just doing all those markets. We we're doing, you know, 90 plus markets a week. It was really, really time consuming. I just felt like, okay, I've done that, but I want to do more more stuff. I want to be able to do more, uh, you know, maybe vignette stuff, work, be with the superstars, do more one-on-one stuff, that kind of thing. And I went and I talked to Vince uh, after speaking with Kevin Dunn. And, and uh, I said, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a team player here, but I would like it maybe if I didn't have to do so many markets. Maybe I would do, you know, the top 50. I don't know. Just something that would free me up uh, to have the ability to go and maybe do more uh, TV tapings. Because a lot of times I couldn't go because I had to work. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, well, we'll see. Maybe we can find somebody. And so the original idea when he was brought in, he was going to 
provide relief in the event center. I don't know if, you know, eventually take it over or whatever, but I was willing to take that chance because I felt that uh, I could offer a lot more. And uh, I was hoping that it might work out. Well, it didn't. He was he was a disaster. And not only that, he just was, uh, you know, kind of it was difficult to work with the guy and try. And, and he had his own idea about doing things. He didn't take direction real well or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the other stuff, as far as that going, I mean, I'd heard things that they brought him in to replace Gene. They, you know, he was going to host, uh, you know, uh, body stars and these, all, you know, and that was never, never the case. Mm-hmm. Um uh, he didn't last very long, but what happened was, was that whole situation that where he accused Pat Patterson and this was a, a real sensitive time of all that, uh, that was going on with the ring crew. You know, uh, there was accusations of other, uh, staff people, uh, being in, involved with the people on the ring crew. So it was like a really sensitive time. Mm-hmm. And that episode of Donahue, if you've ever seen it, it was, you know, an unbelievable performance by the guy. I mean, he literally had the best events. I mean, he was, had an answer for everything. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was just crazy, mm-hmm. but needless to say, uh, he pretty much, pretty much disappeared after that. And I don't, I have no idea whatever happened to the guy, but, um, as far as, I'm having big grand plans for him. He never got that far. I mean, it, maybe he could have or whatever if he would have uh, if it would have worked out, but that it wasn't a very long period of time. And I know that there's kind of this uh, legend surrounding it, but mm-hmm. from my perspective, that's all I ever knew. Okay. So there you have it. That's my uh, my take on right. on uh, that guy. Uh, Chris Korbelik uh, asks a very interesting question that I'm actually kind of interested in. Uh, did you make big money in the WWF, WWE? Yeah, at the time, yeah, I made I made very big money. I think for it was considered that that period of time, it was it was uh, six figures. You know, pretty pretty far in. Uh, not crazy money, but for me, a kid that uh, you know <laughs> grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, it was it was it was great. I uh, they and and um, that's one thing about uh, the WWF WWE. They for people that they value there, they they uh, pay them very well. And uh, to this day, uh, as far as um, you know, how much I'm not going to say the exact amount, but it was it was very good money. And I think that a lot of that had to do that I was you know. I was pretty much the only one that could do that job. I had uh, kind of a uh, monopoly on it in a sense because there were not many people that could sit for three, four days and just keep doing that stuff over and over again. Mm-hmm. And maybe in some ways, you know, when I started wanting to branch out, I kind of, maybe I, I thinned my value because that's what I was good for them for. I was this, I was the guy that could deliver on these these markets and then you know, I was living in Stanford, so they could call me at, you know, six, seven at night and say, hey, you got to come back. The barbarian, you know, uh, tore his bicep off or something. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we got to do 16 markets. Um, but, yeah, it was good. I, I, you know, I look back at it. I'm like, geez, Mooney, what the hell? What, why did you want to go anywhere else? You know, yeah. I don't. But I was young and stupid and thought that, uh, you know, I could do all these other things. And. It turned into a great adventure. I got to do a lot of other stuff, but uh, I don't know. I wonder some days if I would have stuck around. I really do. Yeah. Well, and you were you were young at that point. You were 
Yeah. Like, I was 28 when I, when I started. Right. I was, so uh, 33 when I left. So late twenties guy making six figures doing something that he loves, you know, yeah. uh, and living in Camelot, exactly. I was living in a in a in a uh, you know a kingdom. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was it was fun, and and all these other guys around me too. You know, um, initially Kevin wasn't making a, a huge money, but it, we, but we for all of us it was it was you know for our ages uh, we were single and uh, living in that town. And we it was great. We had a really good time. Did you save your <laughs> Did you save your money? Uh, I did. I, yeah, I did pretty well. Okay. I was, uh, yeah, younger. Uh, I did. I was at least, uh, in some ways, I did. I did listen to a few people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, William Chavezian, I believe, and I apologize for butchering these names. Uh, who is the most difficult person to work with during your WWF stint? And I know you mentioned the Warrior, but are there yeah. are there anybody else? Can you talk about uh, dealing with these these stars when you're doing interviews? Yeah, you know. Uh, Overall, you know, I, I, I've been asked that question a few times, and overall, really, um, I would say, you know, for the, the vast majority, were not bad to work with. There were some that you, you know, you that had their limitations, you know, that just weren't real great in front of a mic. It wasn't for their lack of trying. Mm-hmm. But as far as you know, just being assholes or something, there were, um, you know, there were a few exceptions. Uh, I would say the rockers at their peak and, and Shawn Michaels would readily admit this at that time. Um, and he got worse after I left, but yeah, they could be, they could be, uh, challenging at times. And they, and, and, and really what it came down for me, I didn't, I didn't mix with the boys. I learned from Alfred and, and, uh, you know, Gino, uh, to, you know, that you're separate. And so that was never, a, you know, that was, my my issue was like you got to be professional. We got to get this done, mm-hmm. and then you know we go do our things. And that's so there were the ones that 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 were that uh, didn't respect that. They had a problem with me. Right. Uh, not that I was going to be able to do anything about it, but right. but they knew, you know. And uh, so I would say you know there weren't there weren't that many. There really weren't. Uh, you know when uh, when Sid came in. Uh, he could be cranky sometimes, but uh, I think that a lot of that was frustration on his part because he was trying. He, you know, was under a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so there weren't that many. I really, uh, but the ones that the ones that I loved working with, I could go on and on about. You know, there was, you know, uh, Hercules was was uh, you know, Hernandez was just he was a great guy. Dino Bravo I, was was awesome. I loved Dino Bravo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Uh, the Rougeau brothers were always very, you know, uh, together, always ready to go. Randy Savage, you've heard over and over again, you know, Randy, as much as a complex guy as he was, but I don't know if there was a, a, a better professional uh, that I ever worked with as far as, you know, he uh, always said, and like in the um, the podcast with Lanny, that he truly believed that if he didn't give people everything he had, and it didn't matter if he was out in that ring or if he was back in the, you know, the cube that we're recording um, promos and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that if he wasn't giving everything he had, then he was robbing them. He was cheating them. And that's the way that guy looked at everything. So uh, Hulkster, you know, I, I, I don't, I didn't have any bad issues with him, but, you know, at that point in time, he was this gigantic star and, yeah, you know, I could have, 
I had no problem at all uh, when Gene handled that stuff. You <laughs> got yeah, to do those right. interviews because, you know, uh, he was, you know, beyond what uh, uh, everybody else was experienced. He was just a different level, you know. And you you were talking about how some superstars were greener. You know, they had to be kind of. Uh, coached a little bit. Was that your job or was that a producer's job? Did you like, did you kind of, when somebody would not have a great interview, you'd say, this is how you can do it better? Or did you leave that to somebody else? No, I absolutely left that to other people. There were a few that I got close to. And if they asked me what I thought, then I would tell them. Mm -hmm. But that was not my place, especially because, you know, think about it. No, these are, and not, and and I think they had more uh, freedom as far as what they were going to do with their characters but at the same time you know i wasn't a part of those storylines and, and the last thing i wanted to do was put something in their ear that they would say oh yeah sean suggested this right. you know they're just like things that you did to make sure you stared stayed clear of the flame right i never ever wanted to be that guy where someone said did you tell him that you know <laughs> that, that this might be a good idea don't ever do that again you know i was smart enough to know just you know they, as they say skate your lane yep. do what you do uh, if somebody asks your opinion about it and you and you uh, feel like you have a close enough relationship, you can do that. Then that was different. But uh, absolutely, for the most part, no, I, that was not my place. And I'd ever I didn't I didn't uh, ever cross there. All right. So we're going to move on to a different topic. Eric Burns ha- asks, how did the primetime podcast come about? I would jump it around a bit. Um, I think I've exp- uh, explained this before when uh, this was well, we've been at this coming up on nine months now. And uh, after I'd done, you know, a, a couple of appearances. Um, and so, you know, things when the, and especially with the WWE network, uh, people started contacting me a lot more. And I, I had, I had a news Twitter account. There's, you know, it's Sean Mooney. Uh, uh, at, you know, it's just, it's a different, it's a news account that mm-hmm. I used at Twitter and people found that. And so I started getting all these. I mean, they remember like one night I, I woke up uh, the next day there and it, overnight, you know, like 500 new, you know, followers on it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what the hell is going on here? Yeah. And then I realized that because uh, I still have friends in the WWE that they said, well, Moon, they put up these these, uh, you know, videos or whatever. People are watching them. So I started a different Twitter account, which is, you know, the one that I use now at Sean Money Who. Mm-hmm. And uh <laughs> Like, uh, so other way, anyway, people, you know, there was just more getting more and more involved in it. And, uh, court Bauer, who's with MLW radio network, uh, just messaged me, he, you know, a DM and said, I don't know if you'd ever be interested. I don't know where you heard me. Uh, maybe I, an interview I did or something, cause I don't know if you'd ever be interested, but I think you do really well, uh, on this platform. And so we just went back and forth and, uh, he said, you know, I'd love to have you, I, whatever, however you want to do it. And initially he said, you know, we can get you a co-host and then they can ask you questions and do. And I'd heard all of those, you know, I've, I've heard those formats before and they work for some people. But, you know, uh, what do you, how, I mean, you, you could do one show with me here, Casey. That's probably about the extent of it. that you're. Gonna... <laughs> no, but, I, but I've always been an interviewer and, and I've always been fascinated by people's lives. And that's what I think I've always brought to my career, the, why I've been able to work at this for so long. And I said, no, I mean, I want, I want to, I'll be that guy. And initially I was going to do the podcast like we have it now, where I have a guest every week, but I had been so out of it 
for so long, I hadn't been in touch with anybody, hadn't really been out there. And I'm thinking like, what, how am I going to get people to come on this podcast every week? So I thought, well, maybe if I find a, you know, a superstar who's willing to do this with me and then we can, you know, talk about all these different things and get their perspective. And then you've got somebody who had been an announcer, who'd been kind of on the inside, who lived in Camelot, who'd been in that, uh, that circle there and kind of saw things from behind the curtain, uh, in Oz and then have the, uh, a superstar's perspective from it. And I kept thinking like, who would be great at that? And, uh, who's, you know, hasn't just dropped out or <laughs> is alive. Mm -hmm. And I had always thought Hacksaw Jim Duggan was one of the funniest people I ever knew. I mean, he was a stand-up comedian back then and great stories. And he is still incredibly active out there. I, there, you ever look at his Twitter account? The guy is somewhere yep. every single week. Mm -hmm. Every week he's somewhere. He's all over the place. He's doing, you know, comic cons, wrestle cons. He's going to minor league baseball games. He's, you know, he's everywhere. And uh, so I tracked his number down, uh, got his phone number, and I called him, and he didn't call me back. And then I called him again, and he didn't call me back. And then finally, I think he just said, you know. He's going to keep calling me. So he got on the phone with me, and I talked to him for about an hour and told him about the ideas that I had. And I said, you know, just give it a shot. We'll do a pilot. Let's. Hey, how about us? We'll do a pilot. And so we got on. Uh, you know, we set it up, and we had. Uh, we did this uh, podcast uh, pilot, and it went really well. It was just we hit it off. It was kind of like like we were twenty years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, so we did that. And it, uh, we rolled on from there. And then, as I mentioned, you know, Jim was just all over the place. And when he came back home, that was kind of his home time. And he's very close to his family. And it just got more and more uh, difficult for him to commit to being, to setting that time where we could have two, two three hours to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when we, you know, I said we were about 20 episodes in. And then we started having the guests on. And this is where we are now today. And it's been tremendous. Yep. Love doing every minute of it. So kind of extending on that, when, when you started doing uh, the guests each week, talk about your prep on that. Like, uh, you know, you always talk about how, uh, you know, your conversations are much different than anybody else's with these guys. And you're absolutely correct about that. But talk about how you come to some of these questions. Talk about your research whenever you are preparing to interview somebody. In case you want me to give away my podcast secrets. Come on. You, no. you can you can kind of camouflage it a little bit. That's <laughs> fine. But I mean, I mean, I'm kidding. how do you how do you how do you find these questions that nobody's ever asked these guys for the most part? You know, I mean, well, I, you know, uh, well, the, as I mentioned uh, before, you know, I have always done my homework. I had to. I went when I went to work for Major League Baseball Productions. You know, I grew up in a small town. We didn't have anything that resembled Major League Baseball. We had the Tucson Toros. <laughs> that I don't even know at the time when I was growing up what if they were an A ball or something, you know, whatever. But they, you know, it wasn't like I grew up around Major League Baseball at all. I didn't, I had, you know, you either followed the Dodgers or, and so uh, anyway, I had to do my homework. I had, I had to go and interview Hall of Famers that were, you know, had been out of the game for 30, 40 years. And we didn't have Google then, folks. You had to go and look up and books and everything. And, and I had stacks of books that I studied even before I went back there mm -hmm. and, and constantly did that. And I've carried that all the way through. So anyway, uh, 
you know, I do my prep. Every one of these shows, I'll spend, you know, four or five, six hours just going through material. I don't, I don't trust, I mean, I, I certainly go to Wikipedia, but, you know, you can't trust one source. So I always try and find articles or something else. There's always something more to it. And I'm really interested in, if you, if you uh, listen to the podcast, that I'm interested in their lives. You know, I'm in, interested in people. And how they how they traveled this road. Now it it may have to do with wrestling, of course, but I mean think about it. every single one of the episodes we've had with these guests are tremendously different. Everyone is completely different. Well, but you're basically talking about their lives. The other part of it is I just I listen. You know I listen. That's that's one thing that people. Uh, it's kind of a you you listen to interviews and a guy will say something. He says something really interesting. Really you know just I, I catch things. That's why I say we're going off the tracks. Mm-hmm. But they'll just let it go, and I'll like this. And it's like, oh man, how did you let that go go by? You got to go back and get him on that one, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, the thing you got to be prepared. I've always, you know, that's one thing, and and people appreciate that. I think that when you know when you if somebody's talking to you and they know about your life or things, and they there's things that they say, well, I don't, I don't, I've never really talked to anybody about that before. Because somebody's taking the time, they kind of look at the surface thing. He did this. He was this intercontinental champion. He was uh, at the Royal Rumble. He did. He finished the third. You know, okay, all right. But tell me about him. I mean, and, and and a lot of times when you get there, you peel that back, and they'll tell you stories that you just can't believe. Yep. And I don't know when it's coming. I can't. I I, I can't script. I can't think that. Oh, this question is going to get them. You just. I just, you just see where it goes. Mm-hmm. And that's why these conversations, you know, Casey, we start out. I don't know if it's going to be 40 minutes. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, two and a half hours, which we've, the, the conversation we had with Harry Smith. Now, you, when we went into that, I'm sure you didn't know, like, God, how long is this going to be? I mean, he's right. Davey, Davey Boy Smith's son. Right. But he was, I think he's one of the great, uh, the great guests we've had on because there's so many different uh, perspectives that he could bring to that uh, conversation, not only, uh, you know, being around the Hart family, for example, and imagine what that was like growing up. What, what, a, what a, an insane environment and wonderful environment to be in, uh, all those people. And then your Davy boy Smith's son. Yep. Okay. So he's got that other, the other part of it that he had family in England. He's, he's, he's growing up with a, a father that has just, you know, is off the stratosphere. He's out in the stratosphere as far as fame goes. And he loses him at 17 years old. Mm-hmm. He hardly knew the, his father. And just remember the conversations talking about, you know, I'm, his dad would come home and, and he would, and Harry would pepper him with questions about wrestling. Well, he goes, my dad didn't want to talk about wrestling. That was his life. But he said, it was what, it was the only thing I could just, I knew that I could, I could have in common with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so like to me, that's, that stuff is fascinating that, you know, and obviously, he's still grieving over that that loss. He didn't really get to know me. He was gone too soon. Right. So, uh, you know, that's what I say. I just I, a lot of that. So you got. I, I, I want to be prepared because uh, I can always go off in a different direction and and be knowledgeable about it. Um, and then listen and just listen. Right. Uh, and you know, the other thing too about this podcast in particular is that, uh, from my perspective at least, you don't get the cookie cutter guys that are on every single podcast you've even turned down a couple guys that you felt like have been on too many shows and whatever but you have guys like danny davis craig DeGeorge, 
mm-hmm. Jim Johnston, guys like that, guys that like come out of left field pretty much. Well, I, I got news for you, folks. There's a lot more coming too. I've got a, and you know it, Casey. I got yep. uh, I've got a list of people that uh, I know that uh, you're going to find fascinating. And you know I look for that. You know I do. And yep. I I always I when I think about having a guest on, um, you know, in many ways, not just because nobody's asked them before or 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 uh, you know thought to to put them on a podcast or whatever. It's just that I think about like, man, how many different perspectives can this person have? Mm-hmm. Uh, of of the wrestling business, you know, because, you know, for example, like with Danny, um, here's a guy, you know, that came from the streets of Brockton and was a, you know, who, he was a street fighter. That's how he lived. Mm-hmm. And then, so here you, this is another thing why I always ask about when they're growing up because that that shapes you forever. I mean, why how, how could it not? And here's a guy that uh, he wasn't going to quit for anything. For why would he? To his his choice. He'd been at the the, the lowest part of a, a world, so to him, uh, I'm not. There's nowhere. There's no going back. And look what the, look what he accomplished. Who would have thought that? Uh, not just getting to work in the WWF, WWE, mm-hmm. but the guy becomes a referee. Then he becomes one of the best referees. Then he stretches the envelope and becomes a heel referee. Then he becomes not just a jobber, mm-hmm. he becomes a superstar. Right. And he goes to WrestleManias. I mean, that to me is a tremendous story. Yeah. You know? And that's so that's a classic example of why I love having someone like Danny Davis on my podcast. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to wrestling. Great stories. Now. It's all about storytelling. I mean, anybody asks me what I do for a living, I tell people I tell stories. I, right. Uh, because that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. So Justin Matthews asks, any bushwhacker stories? They seem like all around nice guys and fun to be around. And it's funny because I remember seeing them in the 90s and seeing their whole hokey gimmick or whatever. I never knew about like the sheep herders and all that stuff either. But um, do you have any interesting stories with the bushwhackers? Oh, I love the Bushwhackers. Yeah. yeah, I do. I love the Bushwhackers. Um, you know, one one thing that does kind of that bother me about uh, when people talk about the Bushwhackers is that they don't, uh, you know, they know them as this, you know, goofy, uh, you know, Bushwhacker licking people. Doing, and you talk to other people that, that know who these guys are. They uh, were tremendous wrestlers and, and, uh, before they got to the WWF, they were, uh, you know, a pretty notorious uh, tag team. Um, as what what happens a lot of times, and there are there there's a list, a long list of superstars who came to the WWF, and their their careers changed. But it was all about taking care of their families and making money, and they did what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. I love the Bushwhackers were great. Those two were always in a great mood. Uh, they were they were fantastic, and um, one of the ways I, I immediately um, got in with them is that they we we got into a conversation, and um, you know I told them I played rugby, and they both played rugby um, down under, and uh, so I was immediately the bond was was right there from the beginning, mm-hmm. and uh, I. Th- one of my favorite stories and people can go back uh, to, you know, the WrestleMania um, 
my first one. And of course, with the, the Donald Trump interview that I'd like to forget, but you know, it's out there. What am I going to do? And the fact the guy became president is, uh, you know, sealed it. Right. But also if you remember in that, um, that same WrestleMania, I am, uh, I'm, I'm doing interviews down on the floor and the Bushwhackers are in a, uh, a match and they come back and they said, well, uh, when they come back, they're going to you know, mess with you. you know, a little bit. They're going to come by, you know, they might do. Well, I had no idea what messing with me was going to be when they came back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, they licked me. I don't know if a dog had ever licked me that much. I mean, it was <laughs> like, if you look at it, it's just like, oh, my oh, God. Wow. And, uh, yeah, that, that kind of came as a surprise. The other The other thing was... Uh, we went on tour. We went over to the UK, and uh, so we were. We did a uh, an interview. I was going to do an interview with the Bushwhackers up on this platform. If you remember, we used to do that a lot, where they'd uh, have us down on the arena floor, but they'd have a big platform, and you would do an interview with the uh, whatever the superstars are. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're up on this platform, and I don't know if it was Luke or Butch. But as I go to ask uh, one of them a question, the other one like gooshed me, like <laughs> just as the camera came on. Mm-hmm. And if you look, then uh, that uh, I barely kept it together. Not only just because I was, you know, that's not the most comfortable feeling in the world. Right. But they they did that stuff all the time, and they love to try and throw you off, and they could do it. They get away with it. But you know, uh, that's what was so much fun about that experience because and i think it made me a much better uh broadcaster announcer whatever you want to call me but because you had to be prepared for anything anything to happen everything was pretty much live you were either in front of a camera live or you were in front of an audience live and you had to be able to react and uh with those two they just they just had fun yeah. And uh, and I think they were, they, you know, for what they did. I mean, they were funny. They were great to watch. I just the, the the part that I don't like is that people I don't think really ever really appreciated just how good they were in the ring as as a, a tag team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brett Haldane has a couple questions. First off, what is your favorite past wrestling match and why? Wow. That is that is wow. That is such a, a broad question, but uh, immediately, uh, I'd have to say uh, the the match at, at Wembley Stadium, SummerSlam '92 with Brett and Davy Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because it was just uh, a tremendous match. I mean, it was it was incredible. Um, how I mean, if you go back and look at that, and I looked at it recently when we did that show, um, that. Th- just every, everything about it. If it was, if all that was surrounding it didn't happen, it would still have been a tremendous match. But when you think about, um, and, and Harry talked about it too, that uh, you know, that Davy Boy was in bad shape. Now, whatever whatever the truth is, as far as you know, uh, him getting into um, some uh, shall we say bad uh, substances during that period of time mm-hmm. was he legitimately hurt he, he was supposedly had an infection um or not but he was in no shape and brett has told the story that he couldn't get a hold of him all summer all summer long he was trying to and, and this is that match that you know brett had planned every single move right. 
and claims that he did not even see Davy Boy until the day before that match, and that he was trying to, you know, get that match in his head, but men- mentally, Davy Boy wasn't there. And how the 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 legend goes that when they basically after they locked up, Davy Boy Smith said, "I'm fucked." That you know, I can't I can't do this. And yet you watch that match, mm-hmm. and there's times you see you see Brett uh, talking to him or whatever, and and he claims that he called that whole match, but uh, there's there was that's could not have possibly been the case. There's no way they could have pulled that off. And I think that uh, at the the finish of that, when you watch it, um, not not that they just would have been ecstatic when it was over in, in normal situation, but can you imagine uh, them realizing that they had pulled that off and then you had, you know, Davy Boy's wife in there and, uh, you know, Brett's sister. And it was just all the way around, I'd have to say, that to me there were so many other great ones and we can go on and on you know with mm-hmm. randy and everything but for me uh as far as the human element involved that that uh, stands out to me uh, another of brett's questions is any memories of wrestlefest 88 wow uh you know i had to uh i'd have you know go back and really uh look at you know that, that i think it took place in milwaukee Mm-hmm. Um, and I did, uh, there was the play by play with, um, with Alfred and superstar Billy Graham. That's correct. And a lot of people don't, uh, know that, you know, we did events like that all the time at the garden every month, uh, Alfred and I, and, uh, we did quite a few shows with superstar and we would also go to Boston. It was kind of the swing where you do the Boston garden and then we do the, um, Madison square garden. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember that uh, WrestleFest 88. That was like some really, really great matches that were on that uh, on that card. Um, I think that uh, it, the the main event was was um, Randy Savage and Ted DiBiase, and uh, you know uh, Hulk Hogan and Andre. I think were also in that included in that uh, matchup. Yeah. You know that uh, I think some of these matches may have been added later, but. Um, it was it really that was you look at the the matches that were in that uh, that event, mm-hmm. and for me, I, you know, we didn't get many opportunities that that you know that was kind of a big stage. That was a big stage for for me to be able to do play by play, and that's I think uh, one of the questions also I think I saw Casey that people t- asked me about uh, doing play by play, and um, you know, I I never could f- I figure out why Vince didn't let. Alfred and uh, and me do more because I don't think we were that bad and he uh, you know from what I heard like he didn't he didn't like us together and uh, that always kind of I, I you know I always I wanted to ask him like you know Vince we've ever really listened to us I think that you know we did a lot of matches most of our stuff was in international but I always thought that you know if you work with me a little bit mm-hmm. I might get the hang of this and and uh, you know but they had pretty much set announced teams back then it's not um, you know. Right. Like it is today or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think, uh, and I've listened to some of the matches back then. I just, maybe I'm just, of course I'm biased and I love hearing Alfred. But um, really, I kind of being a bit removed, I didn't think we were that bad. But, uh, <laughs> you yeah, know, I'm, I'm sure there may be a lot of other people out there that liked me being right where I was. Right. I don't know. Well, talk about how you got into doing play-by-play. Was it just something like... 
I don't know, they just kind of rotated people or did you ask to do play-by-play or how did that come about? Well, as I mentioned, Alfred and I lived in Stanford, see, and um, a lot of that stuff was, um, you know, they would they would shoot the matches, but they wouldn't do commentary with them. And what we would do is they would bring them back to Stanford and they kept those, you know, they did it much more efficiently where we would go in and we would do the same match uh, that they had recorded and we would do it for international. Then they'd bring the Spanish guys in, in another booth and they would do it for the, you know, Latin American countries. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were doing a bunch of uh, different languages. They did French, you know, they had uh, uh, a French announced team, they had Canadian, you know, and so um, that's how it started. We were there. And these matches weren't, uh, you know, as far as they weren't being shown in the United States. And so they wanted a different voice for the international. Mm -hmm. They wanted it to be special, you know, that uh, this match was just for you. And that's how Alfred and I started to do that. I mean, it was basically just give them, give them a shot, let them do it. And uh, we did we did a lot. We did a lot of, ma- a lot of those matches for the Coliseum videos. Uh, we weren't there at the arena. If you- mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry to break you. The bubble there, but a lot of those we we recorded those in Stanford by you know watching these matches on monitors. That's how a lot of it was done. I think you just killed kayfabe, but I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's allowed now. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about when you would go to like an event like WrestleMania or a SummerSlam '92 or something. What was it like for you personally? I mean, like the Sky Dome, like things like that. Um, did you chomp at the bit to go to these events? What was it? What was it like for you? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, it was, you know, that was back then. Uh, it wasn't like it is now, where, you know, you could say that you know WrestleMania is the end of the season and the and and at the same time the start. Then it was the end of the season, and so there would be kind of a reset, and so there was this huge, gigantic build for everybody that that was where we were going. All of the events, everything led to WrestleMania, uh, you know, and so it was it, working there. That was the Super Bowl. It really was the uh, and I'm and, and don't discount me now. I'm not saying it isn't to people now, but, you know, I'm saying it just kind of rolls over the next night there at Raw. And, you know, it's right. just whatever happened is just the next day and they just keep building. Right. Uh, then there was this climax, you know, this really was this big, gigantic thing. So the excitement was unbelievable. And to be a part of that, and here I had been, uh, you know, I said, I worked in major league baseball. I went to, uh, you know, how many world series I worked four or five world series when I was there. Uh, I'd been to, you know, uh, NFL, big NFL games and everything. nothing, nothing prepares you for, could have prepared anybody for what was going on at that time. When Hulk Hogan would walk into that arena, you would feel when that place would pop, it would go right through you. It, I never to this day have experienced anything like that. And so um, it was huge. And, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Stanford. I didn't, you know, I didn't get to go to as many TVs as I would have liked to. Mm-hmm. So for me to go to those events, I would get really excited about it because I knew that, you know, even for the other, you know, we had the big four basically with, you know, right. uh, pay-per-view events before they, you know, added all the other ones. But, mm-hmm. 
you know, that was huge. But I used to love to go to those because then you'd see everybody together. It was a huge event. And, uh, you know, you could, they, they, it was awesome. When we'd go, we'd, uh, they, you know, the car would pick us up at, uh, at the TV facility or they'd come to your house and they'd take you, you know, to the airport and we would all get on this private jet and, uh, you know, jet off to whatever the event was. You, you land on the tarmac, there's the, you know, limousines and you know, to pick you up. You get right out of the jet, get into that car, drive straight to the arena, go down into the bowels of the building, get out, you know, and they had everything set up. And mm-hmm. we, you know, you could go to, uh, the, you know, the tape room. And it was just, it was really cool because it was big time. It was huge. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, all of those. I used to, and, and the fact that there weren't, so many of them that in between, just like, uh, you know, the storylines that would build, you would be, feel the same way. I couldn't wait for the next pay-per-view. Yeah. And I used to love the fact that to be out in the crowd with thousands of people, you know, was just a total rush, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, so very, very, very fond memories of those events. So and, and, and Gene and I would hang out, too, so we'd have a good time. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Was there a lot of big parties like after a WrestleMania or something like that? Did you did you partake in anything like that? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I when I would go to TV tapings, I would never do. I would you know go to uh, the parties that the guys would have or anything like that. But at those pay per view events, WrestleMania, yeah, uh, most of the other pay per view events. I mean, you'd be as soon as it was over because you know we all traveled uh, as this big entourage. Mm-hmm. Uh, soon as it's over, you know, you're in the car, boom, back in the, uh, you know, back to the airport, back on the plane, and you were in bed, home and in bed by three, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, you didn't, it wasn't like after party. But WrestleMania was different because it was a big event. Even the next day, we might, you know, you might have, they had stuff for you to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that would be kind of the one time a year. And I remember when we went to the first, you know, one I did was in uh, uh, Atlantic City. And that was one of the first real, you know, they had the wrestle fest, basically fan fest kind of thing. And that was just really exciting because it was, you know, they had all kinds of things going on all the time. You'd go over and we had a, you know, they had a 5k run and I emceed that and I'd go over and we had a kid's fest and I had, you know, breakfast and I got to host that. And so it wasn't just the event itself. It was all these other fun events that were surrounding it too. And then the, you know, the parties that were that went along with it. Mm-hmm. So if you recall back to episode 33 with Craig DeGeorge, we talked about, or you talked about how uh, you basically replaced him on primetime. And there's one question I have about that that I've been curious about. There's, uh, they talk about how you were portraying characters such as Ian Mooney. Talk about... Oh, yeah. Talk about Ian Mooney. Talk about uh, how that came about, and 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 was that something that you had kind of pitched, or was that something that you just did because it was part of the job, or how did that come about? Well, yeah, there's, that's so funny that uh, you know people still you know, send me messages about Ian, and you know, <laughs> and I always say that bum still owes me money, um, but uh, that all came about. And I don't know what the first part of that question was with Craig, but you know, uh, I didn't really re- felt like I ever really replaced Craig because, you know, Craig was uh, when this is when the event center was coming together, 
and they had figured out a better way to do it. Prior to that, Gene and uh, Craig uh, would go to these TV tapings or wherever the boys, even house shows and stuff they would do sometimes, I think, because they had so many of these to do. And what I would do in a studio where I would basically do these wraparounds to the, the interviews with the superstars, they could more do more general storyline. And then I would do the, you know, coming this Saturday at Madison Square Garden, 7 p.m., Hulk Hogan facing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they would do these three-minute interviews with the one guy, and, and they would just do these one after another for each town over and over and over again. And I think at some point they realized, you know, we're going to kill these guys, and it's just not efficient. And that's when they came up with the event center, which I think was brilliant. I mean, I, th I still think that that was, um, you know, uh, one of the greatest marketing uh, ways to to get out your product. And I was in every single show we did. I was at Wrestling Challenge. I was in Superstars. I was in Primetime. I was Spotlight. Every They had an event center in all of those. And it was it was a great, it was brilliant the way they did that. It was, uh, and then all the boys would have to do would be pretty much stick to their angle, you know. Uh, you know, they could, Hercules say, you know, I want to get you whatever and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, the barbarian would come on with Bobby or whatever. And they were just, that's, they could do a lot. Uh, they could do so many uh, fewer interviews and, and, and that saved production time, that saved crew time, that saved everything time. But, uh, but it was, it was rough from my standpoint because I would do all those markets. But I think that, um, initially they were going to have Craig do some other things and, um, because I wasn't doing what he was doing. Okay. So I think at that point they decided to have him uh, leave. I don't know. You know, he, I was, I didn't even know that I thought that he had decided to leave and he said that that wasn't the case. So really you know, I, I was kind of surprised that when we had, when we finally talked after all these decades. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, getting back to Ian, that was, I think they needed, uh, well, uh, they needed somebody to host spotlight uh, with, because prior to that, you know, and Vince would go through these phases where he, he liked doing something and then he didn't want to do it anymore. And that's how I ended up uh, hosting the live uh, primetime mm -hmm. because, you know, he initially started doing that. And then it's like he was busy. He got something and I got a chance to do it. So um, as I mentioned, I was in Stanford. They needed someone to host uh, Spotlight with, with Sherry, Sensational Sherry. And I don't know if Bruce came up with the idea, Bruce Pritchard, or that came from Vince. I don't know. But they said, you know, well, just have him be somebody else. <laughs> and so when I first heard about this, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. I get to be a heel. That'll be great. <laughs> we'll have my evil twin. Uh, he'll come on and smash me in the head with a guitar on the event center and take over. or so. You know, I just thought this is great. Right. And, and so then they sat me down to do this and – they explained to me, and I said, "So I get, to, I get to be, uh, you know, bad guy, and then I get to be a heel." And no, no, we just want you to be, uh, you know, somebody different. Somebody different. I'm like, what do you mean, somebody different? How can I be? I said, "Well, we'll just like comb your hair different. We'll get you some different clothes." And I was like, well, "I mean, it was really, really frustrating." And on top of it, so they pair me with with Sherry, who's a heel. So I can't be a heel too. Mm -hmm. So uh, every week I got to do shows with her and she just beat the living daylights out of me every single show. I think it was a rib on her part mm -hmm. and she just beat me to death. I'm not kidding. She would, uh, she was so stiff <laughs> with me that, uh, so the, the, yeah, I, I, Ian, I think could have done so much more. 
I really, I think he was so talented. He could have been a great heel and they never took advantage of that. And then I, I can't remember what happened with spotlight or whatever, Mm -hmm. but then he was out of a job. So never, never got to be, uh, what I was hoping he would become. And another, uh, another thing that people I get asked about is my sister, Betty. Yes. And for some reason, people think there was a Betty. I don't know if anybody ever saw Betty, because I never did. Because all I know is that was just a character that Bobby Heenan invented. He used to say, your sister, Betty. And for some, some reason, that that somehow grew and that people think that somewhere out there, there was a Betty. Mm-hmm. But uh, I never met her. <laughs> Can you cut a promo as Ian Mooney right now? There was no difference, really. Oh, okay. I mean, I'd be me. I would be me, basically. Okay. That's really what it came down to. Okay. And I was so disappointed <laughs> that, like I said, I wanted so badly to be a heel. I mean, who doesn't? Right. Who doesn't want that opportunity in their life to be a heel? Right. And I and I and I never got the chance. I just got to get beat up by Sensational Sherry every week. Well, and, and talk about that a little bit because there was a, there was a lot of you did a lot of self deprecation and you got beat up a lot and all that. Yeah. Was that something that you incorporated or is that something like they wanted from your character? How did that come about? With her? With, just, with Sherry you're just, talking about? Just in general. I mean, because like I say, there's a lot of times where, you know, you you were the butt of the joke. and As, as Ian or Sean? Both. Or as Sean. <laughs> huh? I mean, and I, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking about. I was kind of a foil. No, but I've always enjoyed that, that, uh that role or whatever you want to call it right. doing that. And I, I, you know, if you looked at, uh, what I did with, with, with Peter Rosenberg, you know, it was the same, same thing. I, it was to me, it was so, it, it, to me, that was, uh, going back in time. And I said, it could have been Alfred doing that with me. It would have been the same thing. And I thought I'd love to do more stuff with Peter because he was great. Yeah. He was, he was, I thought we made a really good team together. Um, but, it's just kind of a, a natural thing with 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 Sherry. I had no choice. <laughs> what was I going to do? No, no, Sherry, you can't do that. <laughs> and I had to be the I had to be the baby. I had right. to be the baby face. Right. So yeah, there was uh, there was not much choice there. Yeah, I saw the video with Rosenberg, and that was hilarious. You were yeah. hold, you were holding the top five, and it was just it was great. Um, so your stint ended in 1993 and it was, it was around the time that Monday night raw was first starting and excuse me, we just had the 25th anniversary of raw. Talk about your, when you first heard that they were going to do something on Monday night, what was your impression? Uh, What was it? How did it kind of, how did raw evolve a little bit as far as you're concerned? Well, I wish I could say I knew it was going to be this awesome, wonderful, uh, unbelievably, uh, you know, historic, uh, you know, television program. But honestly, I thought, yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, I like the idea that we're going to have, you know, going to have kind of this smaller venue, uh, you know, not like going back to the the TV studios, but having this. Uh, you know, really nice venue inside a theater, basically, but jammed to the rafters. That's what I think was why well, that was just so cool because you could feel it with the crowd coming through the TV. It wasn't, you know, an arena. It's a different atmosphere. But that was, and I remember that first night. Uh, I didn't get inside much because I was outside with uh, trying to keep Bobby Heenan from getting in. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, but you could really, you know, I went in for some of that, and I just remember thinking that that. Uh, this is definitely different. 
Um, but you know, a lot of the things that we did, they, they would last for, you know, four or five months and then they decide to do something else. But, uh, you know, it was the fact that, you know, it wasn't that we hadn't done live events before, but the fact you doing it, you know, every week like that in that situation, uh, I remember we were riding back to, um, Stanford that night and having the conversation with the guys. Yeah. You know, that was, that was, that was cool. That was different. So initially, no, I didn't think, well, you know, I didn't know if it would last or, you know, because they changed the, 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 the stuff we did so often or whatever. But uh, initially, no. But then you could see the momentum, uh, you know, every week it was, you know, changing and building. And mm-hmm. it was it definitely changed uh, the world as far as professional wrestling went. And then look what happened with the, you know, the wars. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Talk briefly about why you left. Um, was it was it a personal decision? Was it something that uh, was it money? Was it what what kind of made you leave the WWF? WWF. Well, there was a lot of things going on. Um, I think that at that point in time, I'd been there for five years. I was frustrated for you know uh, that's after you know they had tried to bring that guy in it didn't work and i just felt like okay i'm going to be in this event center forever and it was it was really tough you know to do that and it wasn't so much you know i i it wasn't like i didn't realize what i was the gift i'd been given i mean here i was all over the world uh, uh got to travel and but i was also 33 and i'm thinking okay so what else do i want to do um go on a uh, you know, do this, uh, or I, I want to try some different things. And, and I had been approached by different people about doing other, um, things and my contract was coming up and there was no, and also at the time the company was struggling. This is when we had uh, changed that whole approach to, we were family friendly and then we we're kind of now dipping into, you know, the gutter a little bit. And, uh, that was when there were all these rumors about the what was happening with the steroids and and so it was they were they were struggling mm-hmm. a lot a lot of people they were asking to take cuts and pay and it's not that I had a, a problem with that but I just felt like you know maybe it's time this is a chance I got to you know to go do some other things mm-hmm. uh, like I said you look back I was I was young and stupid in some ways. But it wasn't as though uh, I had, you know, bad feelings towards the WWF. I was very grateful for every opportunity that Vince McMahon gave me. If you go back through the years, I have never said anything different. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he gave me my my start in really in broadcasting, as far as uh, to the point where I was able to do all these other great things with my career. So I've never ever uh, said anything different mm-hmm. from what Vince did for me. So it wasn't, uh, they didn't fire me. They didn't ask me to leave. They, I, I just, uh, I remember I had a, an envelope. I had written this resignation letter. I went over to Vince's office with Kevin. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I, I remember ke- I kept thinking, you know, what are you doing? You don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. And then I said, here, Vince, I have this letter. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, God, I can't take that back now, can I? You're not really handing it to him, but you are. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, was kind of surreal. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, but, you know, when I a year later, I was working for WWOR in New York and I was anchoring in New York and 
I think Vince saw that as, um, you know, a, a big recognition for what the kind of people that he had worked for him. And I remember the next day after my first broadcast, I got a cable from him that said, from him that said, congratulations, Sean, so proud. And I've kept that. I still have that. Wow. Um, so, you know, uh, you could you could look back at things if I would have done it differently. May I probably would have being uh, you know what I know now if I knew you know right. knew then what I know now. But right. you know you can't change things, and it's been a tremendous ride. And I love the fact that I've kind of been back in it on the fringes. There, they bring me back to do stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm doing a podcast, so it's uh, it's great. Right. Uh, were you ever approached by WCW or anybody else after you left WWE? Uh, did you ever think about approaching them? No, you know, and that, that I remember that 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 when I first told Vince I was leaving, he didn't. I don't. He didn't believe me, and he even said a couple of times, "So you're going south? You're going down south?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not. I I never uh, had a conversation. I remember. I think I talked to Tony once." Just uh, and I can't remember if he called me or if I called him or just, but it never. I never really considered ever doing anything down there. I just felt like I'd work for the best. I'm not going to go anywhere else, and I want to try other things. If I wanted to be, if I wanted to stay and be a wrestling announcer, I, there was nowhere else in the world I was going to go. I want to be with the WWF. I'm not going to go down there right. for what you know, because right. they always took great care of me. Yeah. I mean, money-wise and everything. It wasn't though I was, you know, I was looking for, I was going to, they weren't going to give me a million-dollar contract down there or something. You know what I mean? Right. So, no, I, it was never a consideration. And I kept having to tell Vince. And I remember he came over to the studio one day. He just said, will you stay, hang around a couple more weeks? I said, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Was, but, yeah. Uh, did you pay attention to wrestling after you left the WWE at all? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, uh. Um, you know, followed it. Um, that there was kind of a, a, a misconception that people thought that I was, you know, had turned my back on it. And, and I, and people don't understand the people that I work for put that stuff out there because they didn't want it to, you know, I was working in news, God, for God's sakes, you know, this for the, for they realized the, you know, <laughs> fake news or whatever. Right. But, you know, to be a wrestling announcer. And there was a, a sports writer in New York who, hates hated vince oh phil mushnick mm-hmm. and he would uh just whenever he got an opportunity he would just rip vince about anything it didn't matter and the fact that i worked for him and uh, so, you know the abomination of me actually working in news in, in new york was just he couldn't deal with that so anytime i did anything he would uh write in his column you know former wrestling announcer sean mooney mm-hmm. interviewed uh, did an investigative report on whatever we know what that's worth or whatever or he would say, uh, or the uh, Russ Salzberg, who was a sports guy, if, if he ran a highlight uh, of a couple of times, and I remember he did something with Hulk Hogan, and the next day it was, oh, Sean Mooney obviously has some influence in the sports department, putting, uh, getting Russ Salzberg to shill for Vince McMahon. You know, it just wouldn't right. cut me a break. Right. But, uh, you know, it's the way it was back so- then. Back then. Uh, you were you made your triumphant return on the thousandth episode of Raw. Talk about how triumphant, <laughs> triumphant, right? It's kind of it's it's kind of funny because like you you just came back after however many years it was. It was like what fifteen something like that years, 
And yeah. it, it it wasn't like you were Gene Okerlund, somebody that like my mom would know. So how how did it come about that they approached you to come back on that show? Um well, I still know some people with the WWE and uh I think that it was because I was the first person who was ever seen on that show for whatever reason. I just happened to be the guy that was in front of the camera when that show first appeared. I was on the street and welcomed people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we went into a little stuff with Bobby Heenan. And so that was kind of the, uh, you know, my mark in time, my uh, claim to fame for Raw. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and then they just, I think they thought it would be kind of a, a goof to, you know, to, I mean, it would blow people away because people have probably wondered for years, you know, if you didn't watch TV and, uh, Arizona, um, you know, where, what happened to Mooney? And so I think that there was kind of a, it was a kind of a shock value to people to say that's, you know, and then they, they, it was a tremendous response. What was really great about that is that, uh, I got to take my son with me and, uh, Kyle at the time, um, you know, was really into the WWE and he, I said, yeah, I'll come and do it, but I got to let me bring my son with me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had hotels that were going to be staying with me any, you know, there wasn't like it was going to be any at expense except the, the flight. And so, um, that was to me, that was just one of the greatest things that I got to take him there and he got to see all these guys and, you know, Cena came up and said hello and, and then all of these guys that uh, we, you know, we got to go. We were they had to stay in the Legends locker room, and so we're in there. And you know, Joe uh, Laurinaitis was in there, and he was so awesome. And he had his shoulder pads, and he got let Kyle put them on. And Roddy uh, Piper basically adopted my son that night. He had he just loved Kyle, yeah. and even before he left the arena that night, uh, he gave Kyle his his T-shirt. The Roddy T-shirt that oh, wow. you know, right off his back, he gave it to him. Yeah, and Kyle still has it. He wore it. He wore it last week, mm-hmm. and so uh, being able to do that, uh, not screwing up my lines when I got did my little thing with mm-hmm. Daniel Bryan, uh, and it was a whirlwind trip. I think we were gone a total of twenty-seven hours. Wow! But uh, it was great. It, it was great. I really had a really awesome time, and that kind of got me back into it a little bit. And uh, so it's been awesome. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you can tell us about anything you're doing with the WWE now? Well, I know there's already been, uh, everybody knows that not not too long ago, I I did the, you know, we did the DVD, uh, Unseen Matches, and then uh, I did did, uh, the show with Rosenberg, that was a blast. I, I hope that we get to do more of that stuff because, you know, that's my favorite. I love doing that kind of stuff. Uh, they wanted to bring me back for the live show, but my employers would not allow me to do it, uh, which it's still I, it stings me every time I even think of it. Because for the 25th episode, I mean, the 25th anniversary of Raw, mm-hmm. I would have just for to be 30 seconds at the front of that show just to say, you know, uh, the, to, to open that show would have meant it would have just been God. I, I really I can't even talk about. It. I'm gonna get emotional right. thinking about it right. because I wanted to do that so bad. I'm really happy that I did was able to sneak away and do uh, the warehouse little bit I did with Rosenberg for the 
the 25 greatest moments. Mm-hmm. But that kills me. The, and, and and I'm so honored that they even thought of me because I know they didn't bring a whole lot of people back there for that. Right. And uh, the fact that they thought to have me there really meant a lot. So uh, there's something else coming out. And I think that uh, people have already uh, tweeted about it. But, uh, you know, it has something to do with uh, thinking, thinking, thinking. Mm-hmm. Know oh, yeah. Talking about it. So you that'll and, be out soon. You and DDP, I believe, and a couple yeah, other people. Bailey. Bailey, yeah. And uh, Corey Graves. So that was fun. So, yeah, I, 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 hope, uh, I hope more of it keeps coming. And uh, I am going to be uh, at WrestleMania for that weekend. So I hope folks will come by and say hello. Where are you going to be exactly? Do you know? Uh, with the uh, Scott Wilder's promotion, okay, uh, at WrestleCon. Oh, so, yeah. I think I think um, Impact Wrestling's doing something there, and either them or Lucha. Yeah, or no, and, and MLW's got uh, will have a big presence there, so that's going to be great. And I'm really yeah. looking forward to. I'm I'm sure going to run into many future guests. Uh, yes. <laughs> to be there. Yes, that's uh, that's another great part of it. So, I think that's all I have. All right, well, Casey, uh, great questions, and you got a lot more out of me than I thought you were going to, so uh, great job. 